Welcome, everybody. It's good to know that it's still May. We've been in the seven hits from the Jewish songbook, looking at seven of the Psalms which really stand out, especially as it takes us back, not only in our own history to the way the song affected us, perhaps as we were growing up, as we studied it, perhaps we even sang that specific Psalm in whatever church tradition we grew up in, but many of these Psalms also take us back to previous hits, as we've noticed in studying these because sometimes they would borrow from other sources that went way back in the early parts of our Old Testament history. I think it's wonderful to see that. And we're gonna to see today in this particular Psalm that we're gonna be studying, that it's important for us to pass these things along from generation to generation as well. The right song takes you right back to that place. And I appreciate Dr. Pipe's choice of songs in our pre-worship service as we were listening to the YouTube videos, because man, a couple of those took me way back and they were really important. One of them, we used to sing with our youth at Packer Grove Baptist Church in Ann Arbor when I was fresh out of seminary and a music director. And another one of those, I actually remember doing as I was still in college and playing trombone for Continental Singers and we were singing a couple of those praise choruses. So thanks for a great song list. You took me right back there, Steve. Next week, we begin a new series, The Book of First Corinthians a church that had some issues. And because of that, we learned some really good lessons. And so those lessons are still gonna be applicable for us today. And I'm excited to dive into that and get through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Today, May 31st, the last of our seven big hits from the Psalms, Psalm 145, Great is the Lord, which is exactly what we sang about if you were singing along as we were to the pre-worship service music. I couldn't really find an easy one sentence summary of this psalm, and so it's a little bit more lengthy today. He is good to all, patient to all, and near to all who call upon him. That's a summary of the message in a nutshell for what we're going to look at today. But let me begin today because I think we need a preface because there's a sticking point for some people when they get to verse 20 of this specific psalm. So I want to begin on the right foot and set the right tone. And who better to give us the right tone than Billy Graham? So I'm going to quote from him. Somebody had asked who Billy Graham, who of course now is in heaven. They asked him, so Dr. Graham, if God offers his salvation as a free gift, then why wouldn't he just give this free gift to everyone? And this is what Graham responded with. He said, one of the Bible's greatest truths is that God offers us our salvation as a free gift. It isn't something we can buy, nor is it something we can earn by our good works. The Bible puts it this way, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that, of course, is from Romans 6.23. But Dr. Graham went on. He said, the Bible also tells us two important truths about God's gift of salvation. First, it tells us that it is a costly gift. Think of it this way. Suppose you want to express your love for someone that you really care about by giving them a really fine gift. Well, what would you have to do? Well, you'd have to go to the store and buy it. And the finer the gift, the more it would cost you. To your friend, it's a free gift, but it wasn't free on your part. The same is true with God's gift of salvation. To us, it's free absolutely free, but it cost God the life of his son. The reason is because on the cross, 
Jesus Christ became the final sacrifice for our sins. He paid for our salvation with his blood. But Bible also tells us the second truth. Like any other gift, God's gift of salvation doesn't become ours, and this is important, until we accept it. Just as we can refuse the gift someone offers us, we have to accept this gift that God so freely offers to us as well. But why would we? Why would we want to reject that? There's so many benefits, and yet we'll see by verse 20 of this psalm that some people would want autonomy, and they value what they considered their freedom over accepting all the benefits of this free gift of salvation because it comes with a commitment attached as well. So we can see the goodness of God all through Psalm 145. It is one of the five genres of Psalms. This one is the, the genre of a hymn of praise. And so if King David, who is offering this, and it was based on an acrostic so that each section starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, this hymn of praise also includes praise of verse 20. And we'll see why that verse is included, because it's an important part of the praise of God's attributes, even when we get to verse 20. So let me read through this Psalm 145, and then we'll look at the number of attributes that God is showing us through this Psalm. And then we're going to lump three different basic observations together, because I just don't have time to go through every single one of these verses together. So I've just made three general observations that will serve as the outline of today's message today. Let the words pour over you and listen as I read Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all, he has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise to the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. 
And that is Psalm 145. That's a lot of positive attributes, wouldn't you say? Now, this poem, as a praise song, lists a ton of attributes. I'm just going to lump several of them together so you can see them visually. And notice how many times all or everyone pops up here. He's good to all, compassionate to everyone. He's creative, and the implication there in that line means that he is creative in his activity, which benefits everybody. He's mighty in action, also for everyone's good. His dominion endures for all generations, trustworthy in all he promises, faithful in all he does, upholds all who fall, lifts up all who are bowed down, satisfies the desires of every living thing, righteous in all his ways, near to all who call upon him, watches over all who love him, and all the wicked he will destroy. And that's verse 20. And that's why some people, when they're going through this hymn of all these great attributes, get to verse 20, and it's like they stop and they go, oh, wait a minute. Why is that in there? It seems like it doesn't fit. We're going to see why it does fit. And it's important that we learn to praise him for this attribute of his justice as well, because it's righteous justice. Let every creature praise his holy name. You can have a ton of benefits because of your trustworthiness. Let me use a little bit of an analogy for you. Let's say that somebody comes to you and says, you know, I want to tell you a secret and you can have this. This is free. I'm not going to charge you for the secret, but it's going to benefit your life like you can't believe. You're going to be so trustworthy that people are going to want to hire you. They're going to pay you good money to do your job because they know they can trust you. They're going to entrust you with great responsibilities. They're going to entrust you with lots of money because they'll know you're not going to steal. All of this is going to be because of one thing, but it comes with a caveat. It comes with a commitment on your part. You have to commit that if you want all these benefits, that you're not going to propagate falsehood. You're going to tell the truth. You're going to look to always be truthful in everything you say. Now, most people would probably want to say, those are a lot of benefits. That makes sense. I think I would like to make that commitment. I'm going to work very hard to try to be as truthful as I can. But there might be some, they would think about the, the benefits and they would think about their own freedom and they would say, nah, I don't think so. I think that sometimes the only way I can get what I want is to make up a story or fudge the truth a little bit or to say whatever I think my truth might need to be. So I, yeah, I'm going to turn you down on that one and I'm just going to take my chances and do the best I can. Well, how about another fulfillment that you could have. Somebody comes up to you and says, well, let's think about it this way. I'm going to offer you a great fulfilling marriage so that when you're married, you're going to have a partner that's a, a helpmate. This partner is going to come up alongside you. They're going to fulfill so many of your needs. They're going to be there for you in times of trouble. They're going to bring out all the best attributes and qualities in you. They're going to give you confidence in yourself. They're going to keep you from getting lonely. They're going to share in a vision together that you couldn't possibly have had by yourself, but it comes with a commitment. And that commitment is you are going to need to commit to keeping only unto this one person for as long as you live. You're going to commit to fidelity, in other words. Now, you could say, I want those benefits. Yes, I'm willing to commit that. I promise to hold only unto you for as long as I live. Or you could say, boy, that sounds pretty restrictive to me. That sounds pretty exclusive, and I like my freedom, and so I'm going to take my chances, and I'm just going to go looking for love and however I can find it with whomever I can find it with, and I'm just going to enjoy life, and I think I'll be able to find a lot of happiness that way. 
You see where I'm going with this? I hope you're starting to see the connection between all these attributes that King David puts forth for us in Psalm 145, but it comes with a verse 20. It comes with that commitment on our part that says, and I'm going to stay only unto you, Lord. I'm going to keep to you as my Lord and Savior. I'm going to serve you and serve you alone. And that's how I'm going to get all these attributes that are benefits to me. Because God gives himself to us through the Holy Spirit and helps us become like God. We're not gods, but he helps us to become like Jesus Christ in the sanctification process until one day we'll be able to see him face to face. A lot of benefits, but a lot of people value what they consider their freedom what they don't realize is they're really in bondage because they haven't surrendered into the loving authority and hands of a loving God. So all these benefits are available. We see it clearly. We see it all through the Old Testament, the Old Testament and New Testament. All God's benefits are available to us, but they come with a required commitment. And that's why verse 20 reflects what is necessary for those who aren't willing to make that commitment. For those who say, nah, I'm going to take my chances. I really don't want to serve this God. Well, there has to be a place for folks like that. And they get to choose if they're going to be in that place or not. First observation of the three observations that we're making in lumping all of these attributes together into three observations of Psalm 145. First of all, God's attributes are known because they have been passed down through many generations to us. One generation commends your works to another, and they tell of your mighty acts. Aren't we glad that we had people who went before us, who passed along these words of truth, and continued to teach us the songs and hymns, and maybe even the psalms of our faith, so that we could remember the attributes of this God who loves us so much? It's a trope. It's a movie trope. You can look at an awful lot of movies and you'll see this wonderful, wise, elder person in a tribe or a group of people or in a culture, and they're sharing the stories of their people, the stories of their background, their origin stories, for example. It's a trope. Well, where do these tropes come from? They come from some basis of truth, and I'm here to tell you, I think the original trope started with the Bible because God wants generations to hear about his goodness that were passed along from generation to generation. Why is it important that we pass along God's attributes to the next generations? Well, listening to Mark Elwell teach from the book of Judges, as he did even this morning, we can tell what happened with Israel when they continued to forget about God. Here's a verse that comes from Judges 8. Right after Gideon died, Israel forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. And as Mark mentioned, even this morning, even Gideon started to forget some things. God had done amazing works through him, and yet he takes all this gold from people's earrings and fashions it into an ephod, and the people start to worship the created thing instead of worshiping the God who saved them. It's an amazing thing to watch again and again how all this power starts to go to people's heads, and they start forgetting what God had done for them. That's why it's important for us to keep passing these things along to the next generations. God's word to Israel flashes all the way back to Moses. I can't help but wonder if David, who would have definitely known all about Moses, this patriarch, if he would have been thinking about these words. Through Moses, God had said to Israel, I will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. 
And somebody from the outside hearing this for the first time might look at that and think, ooh, wow, boy, God is harsh, isn't he? But look what happens in the very next verse. Now, third and fourth generations, right? Three or four, keep that in mind. Look at this one. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. Doesn't this sort of parallel what David has in Psalm 145? All these attributes. He lists them, just rat-a-tat-tat. All these attributes and all these benefits. And then there's this one thing, but you have to love and obey me. And he offers that all the way back with Moses to the children of Israel. Yes, I'm going to lavish my love on you. All my blessings are available, but you have to commit to serving me and serving me alone. Now, why is that not a, a selfish thing for God? Because God is the only person who is so good and so just that he can offer himself to us, knowing that that's going to be the best thing we can possibly get. So he's the only person ever who could offer that and command exclusivity because he knows that that's going to be the best thing for us. That's probably this uh, blessing in Exodus 20, which he offers to people who love him and obey him, was a part of the inspiration for that song, The Blessing, which we have probably all heard by now. If you haven't, please go and look it up and watch it. It's such a beautiful song, and it really reminds us of how powerful this blessing is for us, that he wants us to be blessed, you and your family and their children and their children for a thousand generations. But let's not forget that it comes with a commitment to serve God and not forget his benefits. My grandparents did wonderful things for me by sharing their stories. I remember my grandmother, my dear, sweet, little four foot 10 grandmother, talking about the times when they didn't have two nickels to rub together. And it was during the depression, they had this little Model A car and they would chugga, chugga, chugga over to the next town so my granddaddy could preach. And she said, we knew they didn't have much money. So we didn't know if we'd get paid or not, but it was our calling, so we did it. And we thought God will provide for our needs. And they would get there. And one time she said, we actually got to the place and they didn't have any money. They gave us uh, a sack of flour and a live chicken. And that's what we got for payment for preaching that day. But God supplied our needs. And I remember those stories because they stood out to me. She was like the wise, wonderful elder passing along the attributes of a loving God who loves us enough to take care of our needs and to pour out his benefits to us because we're putting him first in our lives. I love those stories. My mom would have a tuck-in routine with me at night and with my sister when she was younger, and she would rub our heads. I still like to have my head scratched because it's so relaxing, and I think because my mom used to do that when I was a preschooler. She would tuck me in, she would rub my head and scratch my head, and she would sing songs of the faith to me, like Jesus Savior pilot me over life's tempestuous sea, and all to Jesus I surrender. She would sing these hymns of the faith so that they were embedded in me, and I associated that with comfort and love and security. And I know that she was doing that because she was passing along to the next generation all these wonderful attributes of a God who wants to lavish us with that kind of blessing if we'll put him first. Why is it important? Right after Gideon died, Israel forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. How quickly we can forget. Let us not do that. Second observation, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and rich in love. Now we've seen that before in a couple of other passages. Why is that so important for God 
to be known as a person who is slow to anger and rich in love? Well, you can see that it's important that we know the right definition for slow to anger. We don't want to misread that as being indifferent. Just because he doesn't rush in and take care of a certain need immediately doesn't mean he doesn't care. It means that he understands what it means to weigh all the evidence, to give enough people time to work through what they need to work through, but you can tell that his justice is going to be absolutely correct every time because his justice is righteous justice. We shouldn't misread God's patience as indifference. We need to know that the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power, as it says by the prophet Nahum. And look at the next verse from Nahum. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's a promise. We can count on it. Hasn't it been just mind-boggling to see all the protests and the anger and the looting and some of the other ludicrous things going on in our country right now, some of which grows out of frustration, and I want to listen to that frustration and find out what might be the real problem there, but you just want to pull your hair out because you want to think, oh, folks, you're going about this in all the wrong ways. This is not helping, and yet we know that there needs to be justice. Isn't it good to know that somebody is looking out for all this all over the globe, not just in America, and he's going to bring about perfect, righteous justice at the right time? We can count on it. Here's another thing we need to count on. He gives plenty of warning before the gavel falls. God's given plenty of warning. Look at the Old Testament. He's constantly warning through the prophets, Israel, turn back to the Lord. Israel, turn back to the Lord. Don't forget my benefits. Don't forget me. Put me first. He continually gave them lots of warning before we, he would have to bring forth punishment and draw them back to himself. Well, interesting that we can look back at these great hits because we know that David had a few of his great hits that he could look back to as well. Earlier, wise elders passed down these attributes to David. That's where he learned about them. It says, then the Lord passed by in front of Moses, who was up on Mount Sinai, getting ready to get those Ten Commandments from God who gave them to him so he could go back down to Israel and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. Here's that phrase, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. You know what Moses had to do when he was a leader of these people getting them out of Egypt? He had to be a judge. And said, in fact, it started to weigh on him so much that his father-in-law Jethro had to instruct Moses to get some other people to be district court judges, so to speak, because Moses couldn't handle all of the judgments that he had to make with so many people that he was leading. But he would have known that swift justice is almost always flawed justice. He knew that to delay the justice process meant that we could gather all the facts. We need to find out who's really at fault here. Is there more than one person at fault? What's the appropriate punishment? What's the desired result? All of that has to go into a justice that's really fair. I had a good friend, he's in heaven now. His name is Jim Sheridan. Uh, he a, was a district court judge in Lenaway County and I served on a committee trying to help stave off the divorce rate or lower the divorce rate in Lenaway County. It was called Marriages That Work. And Jim came to faith a little bit later in life because he was weighing all the evidence and he asked his pastor a ton of questions because he was approaching it like a lawyer. And when he was finally satisfied, he took that step of faith and said, yeah, God is a fair judge and I can count on him as well. His observation is that we have to have a delayed judgment, otherwise it's not a fair judgment. He knew that being a district court judge 
In fact, he would say sometimes it's good to let people think about what they're going to be experiencing before we finally give the sentencing. That's why we delay sentencing so often, because they need to really think about it and weigh it carefully. Sometimes that's where the real lessons happen, is in that painful waiting time. So Jim understood that, and after 911 occurred, he actually gave a talk in his courtroom and gave his testimony. And he said, we can count on God being the absolute righteous judge who's going to bring real judgment, but it's going to come at the right time. And the reason he's delaying it is not because he's indifferent, it's because he wants everybody to come to him. And so his delay is because of his love and his patience. So thanks, Jim, for a great sermon illustration, because I still believe that to be absolutely true. Those who reject versus those who accept. This is something you hear a lot about in Baptist churches and conservative evangelical churches. And there are a lot of people on the planet today who chafe at the idea that there would be those who reject God and that they would have some sort of punishment. There are a lot of people, even some kind of what we would have called famous preachers who have sort of broken ranks with this idea. And one of them actually wrote a book and he was trying to say, oh, but love wins in the end. I just, I have to say that's a very dangerous, dangerous theology to think that we can throw out justice and say that the way that God is going to solve everything is because he's going to pour out love over everybody. That's not fair to the people who demand justice because they needed to have somebody punished for their sin. God had to deal with punishment. That's why he sent his son. Let's, let me give you a, a kind of a crazy off the wall uh, analogy. This is a hypothetical situation, but let's say that you have a neighbor that moves in next to you. And this neighbor is, uh, I used the term rascallywag last week. He's a rascallywag. And while you're gone shopping, this neighbor breaks into your house, ties up your dog, tortures your dog, steals all of your food, steals your expensive jewelry, steals your TV and any expensive things in your house, trashes the house, turns everything over, gets a spray spray can of paint and paints awful words all over the walls of your house and then stores all this stuff in his garage. Well, you would expect justice to be meted out to somebody who did that, wouldn't you? He gets caught because you can see a trail leading from your house to his house and you call the police and they arrest him and he goes before a judge. What would you think? How would you feel if the judge who hears the whole story gets both sides of the story and then says, you know, I'm feeling lenient today. I'm feeling forgiving. I'm going to show my love to you. You're forgiven. You're free to go. And that neighbor moves right back in to the house next door to you. How are you going to feel about that? Don't you think that justice should need to be meted out somehow? Now, let's say that you're off shopping the next week and the same person breaks into your house yet again. And even though you've replaced some of the items, you couldn't afford to replace all of them, they steal the ones that you bought in the previous week. And they spray paint more awful words on your walls. So they get arrested again. They get brought before the same judge again. The judge says, you know, I think, I believe you when you say, trust me, I'm a changed person. I won't do it again. I promise. I believe you. You can go and I forgive you. How is that justice? You're going to be fit to be tied, I would think, because you need somebody to pay for what was wrong, wouldn't you? The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. There are going to be punishments for people who reject God. 
but for a thousand generations, those who love me and obey my commandments are going to find these wonderful attributes of God and the blessings that will be poured out to them. Here's the thing. It's delayed justice, but the observation has to do with justice in that Jesus Christ paid for our sins by what he did for us on the cross. There will be people, because he won't force them to love him back, who are going to reject him. What do we do with them? Would it be right for him to force those people to stay where he is if they don't want to be in his presence? What kind of God would that be? That in itself would be unjust or unjust. So he has to create a place. Those people who get to make their own choice choose to reject him. That place is what we know then as hell. That's why hell is necessary. That's why verse 20 is necessary in Psalm 145. And that brings us to our third observation. His compassion is for everybody. He doesn't willy-nilly, whimsically choose, okay, I'm going to choose this person and this person. He offers it to everybody. I preach this again and again and again because it's true and it's in Scripture. And I want people to know God's love is offered to everybody freely. We can see it in verses 8, 9, 14 through 16 of Psalm 145. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to everyone, to everyone, to everyone who calls upon him in truth. How many people does he call upon or, or is he available to? Everyone, but all the wicked he will destroy. That's an attribute of justice. And that's why we can praise him and why it's included in a praise him because his attribute of justice is why he had to send his son to die in our place in the first place. Because justice without punishment is ludicrous. It leads to anarchy. I think all of us would see that on a human scale, in a human way. We would see that justice without punishment with no teeth in it, if there's no consequence for doing wrong, what kind of ethics is that? What kind of morality is that? I wouldn't want to serve a God who is that immoral. A moral God is going to mete out the correct punishment, and yet he's patient enough to give everybody every living breath they have to turn to him and trust him. Though we know that they have free will and many will reject him. So that's that hypothetical next door neighbor. Think about that when you think about God's justice. He's a patient and just God. There was a guy, he's in heaven now too. He was an apologist and he was a prolific writer and speaker named Dave Hunt. He said, for God to forgive sinners without the full penalty being paid would contradict his justice and make him our partner in evil. Logically speaking, Dave is right. Christ fully paid that penalty for our sins, but the pardon must be willingly and gladly received. God will not force anyone into heaven. That's a fair and just God. So why do I keep pushing so hard on this justice and hell issue? Because I've mentioned it a lot lately. Because if hell doesn't exist, then God isn't just. And there's so much pushback. And I've been reading lots of different blog posts and magazine articles from different sides of this issue. And there's just an awful lot of leaning toward the idea that hell isn't complementary with a loving God that somehow we can't put those two things together. And so that means either A, there is no God, or if there is a God, he's an unjust God. Neither of those things is true. Both those things can coexist together 
And that's why I keep pushing on this because it's such a prevalent thing and it's such a dangerous thing to take us into this universalism where everybody's gonna be free and everybody's gonna be in heaven regardless of what we thought about God or whether or not we accepted his free gift. The Bible just clearly doesn't teach that. Thomas Christensen is a fellow that I read this week in Relevant Magazine. Uh, he's a young thinker, a thinking Christian, and I appreciate that because he was honest enough to say, I've really wrestled with this concept of a loving God and hell. Because people have asked me, are people going to spend eternity in hell? And see, he, he said, I have to wrestle with that in my own thought and spirit and to do my own reading. So I read everything I could to get my hands on to figure out how can I rectify hell with a loving God. First thing that he said in this relevant magazine he said, God is smarter than I am. And he referenced the book that I've referenced before. It's C.S. Lewis's small book, The Great Divorce. Now, I'm not saying that C.S. Lewis got every aspect completely right. It's fiction. But the concept that can be there in this book is important for us to consider. The concept basically is that all the people were on the recreated Earth, this new planet that's different than the planet we know of today. There are different attributes of that planet. But those who were in hell didn't realize they were in hell because they kept distancing themselves, not social distancing because of a virus, but they were distancing themselves from everybody else and from God because of their own isolation. They were self-isolating because of their hatred for everybody else. They were so consumed with self that they kept moving farther and farther away from other people and they were miserable. They were always stewing in their own juices, even though they were on the same planet and could have made their way closer and closer to God. They didn't even recognize it because of their, I love the concept. I think it's really a unique concept and it causes us to think, wow, is it possible that hell exists because of people's own attitude? That we determine whether or not hell exists or not because we choose to distance ourselves from God? I think there may be something to that as we try to wrestle with a concept that's so abstract that it's difficult for us to grasp fully. But here's the thing about Thomas Christensen. He wasn't saying, and so I think that C.S. Lewis exactly depicted what hell is gonna be like. He didn't say that, but here's something I think is vital. He says, if a human can come up with a plausible idea of how everyone in hell wants to be there, it gives me hope that God's solution comes from an angle I can't even begin to understand. That's what he meant by God is so much smarter than I am. And we can trust that. We can trust that God is so much smarter that by the time we get to the end of our lives and it's our turn to go before him, when he starts to open up our eyes so we can see more clearly, we'll probably be going, oh, wow. In fact, he said this, God is way, way, way smarter than I am. Just because I see a two-sided problem doesn't mean that God doesn't see a hundred different options that I can't even consider. And then another thing from him, he says, not only is God smarter than I am, but God is more loving than I am. And I, I love his quote from this as well. Thomas says, when I know everything completely, he's referring to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, because one day we're gonna know everything more completely. God's gonna give us this wonderful knowledge. So even though we probably got a whole backpack full of questions for God, when he gives us this knowledge, all those questions are probably gonna disappear and we'll probably be going, oh, I get it now, no wonder. When I know everything completely, including the nature and reality of hell, I believe that I'm gonna respond by saying, God, you are so merciful and generous and loving. I can't believe how great you are 
I thought hell was this terrible thing, but now I see it's all part of your love and generosity. And I love that quote because it captures what I've been trying to share from my heart in these many messages when I've actually mentioned heaven and hell. I agree with you, Thomas. I think you're getting it right. Because God is good and patient and near to everyone who calls upon him. This is why we get to the end of Psalm 145. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. When we praise God, it affects every area of our lives. We need to be thinking of his attributes as the last thing we're thinking about before we go to sleep at night and as the first thing that we wake up to in the morning. I've been trying to process that into my own life a little bit. I finally gave up watching the news on TV probably more than a week ago now because I was just so distraught by what I saw. It was driving me nuts. And I started replacing that and I was trying to listen to more music, and especially as I would get myself a little bit more prepared, I'd quiet my spirit a little bit more. And it was really cool because now that I've been waking up in the morning, I'm literally waking up with a song in my mind. And if it's a song that's talking about God's attributes, that's the first thing I think of when I wake up in the morning. I've also been walking almost every morning. I start to walk and thoughts about God and his attributes and the music are going through my mind instead of the problem of the world. It's amazing how that affects my whole day after that. So I queued up for you for tomorrow. You're welcome. I'm happy to help with this. I queued up a song for you on our closed face Facebook page. Uh, those of us who are members of that tomorrow morning early. I don't know how early you awaken, but it's pretty early. It's going to be a song that will just bless your day. I'm sure. I hope that you'll listen to it. If you're a Facebooker and it comes up, it's called the first song that I sing from Sarah Grove. And I started asking a conversation that I want you to enter into and continue to make a larger list because we've only gotten one song on there offered so far. Thank you, Ed Haycox, for that. Uh, but he offered a really good song. I had asked for songs that you think would quiet our spirits, put our minds on God, and help us think about his attributes and that make us feel peaceful. Because that can become a playlist that we would want to listen to before we go to bed at night. And parents, I would urge you, do this with your children, especially now during this crazy pandemic. I know if I've been as distraught as I have about the things going on in the world, I know our kids have got to be trying to process some things that are extremely scary, and it's very unknown and crazy to them. But you know what? God is not distraught by this. God is still God, and he loves us. He cares for us. And if we'll press into him at night, and sing songs about him and talk to him openly about what we're thinking and feeling and go to bed with him on our minds and hearts. And then if that's the first thing we think about when we wake up in the morning, it's going to change our attitude because God is still on his throne. He's still sovereign. He still loves us. And there's still work for us to be doing as we share his love with others as well in the ways that we can. And that's Psalm 145 takes us to the end of the seven great hits from the Jewish songbook. I hope that Psalm 145 will be one of those that you'll look back on several years from now, and that perhaps you'll think, oh, I remember that song. I remember what was happening as I studied that song. And you know what? I still want to commend God's great works and his attributes to the next generation, because he's still available to everybody who calls upon his name, and his justice is righteous which is one more reason I can praise him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
I do pray for everybody who's listening that they would start to sense your attributes that are available to them, that they will come to you as a loving God, and that one of the ways you express your love is by being just. You expressed that justice even most amazingly to us by sending your own son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. That's how we know how loving you really are. And so you fulfill both love and justice together through Jesus Christ. May we trust you. May we put you first in our lives, knowing that it's a small commitment to make when we think about all the attributes that you want to pour into our life and character through your Holy Spirit. And yes, we need to die to self so we can become a new creation. But man, it's worth it. It's worth selling everything we have to get that one treasure in the field, to use Jesus' analogy. Father, I pray that you would help us to see you as loving and just and to want to serve you and to serve you alone so that we don't make the mistakes that Israel made time and again. Help us to trust you and help us to fall asleep at night thinking thoughts about you and how good you are so that we'll wake up in the morning with you on our minds and to know that you have charge of everything in our day and so it's going to be okay. I pray in Jesus' name.